Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm Chris Case. Many of our listeners, and in fact, most of the staff here at Fast Talk Labs could be considered time-crunched athletes. People with, say, six to eight hours to train each week. We're athletes who, because of commitments like parenting and work, must try and find ways to fit training in around life rather than the other way around. And if you've heard that term before, the time-crunched athlete, it's because of our guest today who literally wrote the book on it. But before you jump to the conclusion that the prescription in the book is high-intensity intervals all the time, think again. That isn't the case, and today we explore the specifics of the method as well as the science that informs this training approach. We'll also discuss its limitations and whether, as we're so often asked, if it can play nicely with the polarized approach. Our featured guest today is, of course, Chris Carmichael, author, coach, and the founder and CEO of Carmichael Training Systems, or CTS, which now boasts 50 professional endurance coaches who've worked with more than 25,000 amateur and professional athletes since 2000. Chris was a member of the 1984 Olympic team and the iconic 7-Eleven Pro Cycling team, and is a best-selling author of more than 10 books on training and nutrition. He was also coached the U.S. Olympic cycling team in 92 and 96. Today, we're also joined by a host of other experienced coaches, including Menachem Brody, Jared Berg, Julie Young, and Neil Henderson. That and much more today on Fast Talk. It's time to explore training with limited time. Let's make you fast. Hey, I'm Ryan Kohler, head coach and physiologist at Fast Talk Laboratories. And I'm Trevor Connor, CEO of Fast Talk Labs. Between the two of us, Ryan and I have over 40 years of coaching and clinical experience. From juniors to masters, national level athletes to club riders. Our team at Fast Talk Laboratories is pleased to offer new solutions and services. Now you can get the same guidance and testing available to athletes at national performance centers. No matter where you live or train, our virtual performance center can be your support network to get faster, to get answers, and to get more enjoyment from your sport. Schedule a free consult. We'll discuss your background and recommend a path forward. Book a coaching help session. We'll help you push your thinking and find new opportunities. We can troubleshoot challenges and find solutions. Even if you're working with a coach, we can help support you and your coach by bringing a neutral, science-based perspective to your training. Schedule inside testing you can do from anywhere in the world. We can reveal incredible insights into your personal physiology and strengths as an athlete, plus next steps to improve your performance. Prove your nutrition with a consultation tailored to your needs, or create a personal race day nutrition plan. We can even help you with workouts and skills. We offer in-person and virtual sessions to guide key workouts or improve technique. Fast Talk Laboratories is here for you, wherever you are. See how we can help at fasttalklabs.com solutions. Chris Carmichael, welcome to the program. Hey, I'm happy to be here, guys. Trevor, story time this this episode or no? Just a little little tidbit you've got. I don't have a story, but uh, you know, I just want to give some context. Obviously, Carmichael Training Systems has had a, a huge impact on cycling, on coaching for for several decades now. So when we wanted to talk with you, I mean, the the different things that we could discuss. But I think the reason we picked the topic that we have today, I would say the thing that sounds like you've been focusing on a lot lately is this time-crunched approach. And that has really become a household term now. I hear cyclists all the time talking about the time-crunched approach. And that's really something that you have coined. So I guess, no, sorry, Chris, I didn't have a, have a story, but I have a question for you, Chris, which is, what made you head in this direction and, and lean into figuring out a way to help athletes that don't have a lot of time to train, figure out how to, how to get the best out of that limited time? Sure, that's a good question. When we first started CTS 22 years ago, I was fresh out of USA Cycling where I was the national coaching director and had been there just about 10 years. And before I was the coaching director, I was the men's national road coach. And the majority of the athletes we had coming into CTS in the first two, three, four years were primarily elite athletes, emerging elite athletes. And we used 
pretty much the kind of tried and true periodization model for organizing training with, with these athletes. And it was about, I think, probably 2004, 2005, we really started to see much greater influx of what I'll call time-crunched athletes. And, and uh, these were athletes that had about eight hours a week, six to eight hours a week to train. And that started to rapidly become the bulk of the athletes that we were working with. And, and that's, in essence, really why I started CTS at the time was to bring sort of elite cycling performance to a much broader group of, of athletes, not just elite athletes. And, and so we had a lot more of these athletes starting to come in and our coaches that were with us at, at CTS, it was kind of clear after a little bit that that you know, previous model, that model that had worked really well for elite athletes, athletes that really had basically the vast majority of the day to train, really wasn't very effective on the doctors, the lawyers, the accountants, the, the bankers, these sort of athletes that had, you know, on the upper end, eight hours, maybe nine hours, on the lower end, about six hours to train. We needed a different training model in which to organize the training. Chris, why don't you, for those who don't actually know what this approach is, could you describe it briefly, this time-crunched approach? Sure. Basically, the equation of, you know, workload being, you know, training time slash volume and intensity equal, you know, the athlete workload. And and, uh, as we started looking at that, we started to realize that, you know, geez, when an athlete has eight hours or less to train, really training volume is no longer going to create, especially to a, a seasoned athlete, one that's that's uh, has a fair amount of experience, fair amount of training history. There really, there's not much adaptation you're going to see on having them do a hour and 50 minute endurance pace ride. So we basically just removed training volume or training time as one of the factors that would make up an athlete's workload. And we just focused on intensity. And uh, with that, you know, obviously intensity being how hard an athlete is riding, we focused on, we had two primary goals in which we felt if we were to make positive adaptations with the athlete, if we were able to improve their VO2 max, we're able to increase their functional threshold power, their chance of performing better went up significantly. uh, so those were the two main targets of the time crunch program with the idea that we focused on intensity to get the proper training stimulus. And our goals were improving VO2 max and improving lactate threshold. I would wonder if your approach here is to say, we have limited time, there has to be a bit of a compromise. If I had all the time in the world with an athlete, I wouldn't take this approach because there would be gains I could get them to make from a different approach with more aerobic work, et cetera. But we don't have that luxury. So we must make this compromise. And, you know, I would assume you set expectations with an athlete. This is not going to get you to the best you could ever be, but it's going to get you to the best you can be given the time that you have. Is that is that a correct assumption? Absolutely. And you got to work back from the athlete. Everything emanates there. And, uh, you know, as much as you would love to see that athlete have some weeks where you could push them out to 15, 16 hours of, of training in a week, if they simply don't have it because of work demands, family demands, things like that, you've got to work within the constraints that you've got. So you've got to make some compromises. And, and so that sort of, idea of longer endurance miles and the adaptations you aerobic adaptations you could get you really just got to kind of give up on and you got to focus on like i said improving vo2 max and functional threshold power you have formalized this in a really great way and far more than i ever did but i had a way of training athletes when when one of my athletes came to me and said i have an event i want to be strong for it's a couple months away i'm not fit right now so we need to get fit quickly and I don't have a ton of time. I always called this the Rocky Montage 
training plan <laughs> because it felt like you did, you know, in, in the Rocky movies, they always had that 10 minute montage where they're training really hard. And that's kind of what this training routine feels like. You get super strong for a few weeks. And then I, I always warn them, you're going to have that big peak, but afterwards you're going to feel like you went 15 rounds with Apollo Creed. And what I actually liked is you had a chapter in your book called Terms and Conditions and said, yes, there are sacrifices here. And you had the exact same descriptions. You said, this is a, a 10 to 11 week program, as I remember. You're going to get really strong in those last three weeks, but then you have to take a four to six week rest because if you don't, you are going to crash hard. Absolutely. The nice part about this program is th the gains can be had pretty quickly. And as long as you're putting in the right bouts of recovery in there, in between the intense training that you have the athlete doing, they see the gains and they see them from really one workout to the next. And they go, wow, you know, power is going up. I'm getting a little further up the hill than what I was doing just last week for the same duration. And they get really excited by it. And you kind of are always fighting that more is better type of uh, approach. And, and you've got to say, look, you know, this is not something that is sustainable in the long term. You've got to take a break from it. You've got to back it down or else it's just, it's going to kind of crumble in on itself. We like to say this is a great program for events up to about three hours. And beyond three hours, well, you're going to need to start you know, there, there are limits to the advantages that this program can have. But I will say, look, you know, if if you're able to keep the athlete in the game and in the competition longer, all the better, you know. And, and if they were getting dropped on the second or third hill, and now they're making it over those hills and they're continuing with the group and they're getting at that kind of upper limit, the duration of the entire event, but they're still in the game hey, you've done a good thing with that athlete. And they're usually pretty content with where they are. No, and understandably. So I'm looking at one of your plans here, showing you have multiple ways to map this out. But I noticed that typically you have, it's, it's Tuesday and Thursday, you're going to do hard intervals. Saturday, you're going to do some sort of intensity, but it's often over-unders and, and a little bit different from what you're doing during the week. And then on Sunday, you're going to do a one to three hour ride, keeping it, it much easier. But it's, it's four days a week and the other days you aren't touching the bike. And is that just to accommodate for the fact that these people have limited time? Or do you feel even if they could get on their bike one of those other days and, and do something easy, they should take a rest day instead? If they could get on their bike and ride a little bit, it would need to be easy paced recovery style ride because the Tuesday and Thursday workouts, that's generally the approach we take Tuesday and Thursday are the intense training workouts. You're going to need to recover from that in order to, to get stronger. And uh, so you've got to be able to back it down. And if you had more time, we'd probably change the model a little bit where we weren't doing intense workouts every Tuesday and Thursday during a build phase of the time crunch program. And we'd probably add in a little bit, some more moderate paced endurance rides. But with most of the athletes, as we started seeing the ship, if they can get in eight hours, they feel great, you know, and they're riding for maybe five days a week. Getting beyond that, you're just asking them to do something that it's just really challenging for them to do. And it's stressful on them because of demands from work, family, just, you know, other, other demands in their life. And so what I find it's, hey, let's focus on where we're going to get the biggest return. And if we're going to be able to improve your VO2 max by 5% or increase your functional threshold power by 15%, that's great. They're going to see, they're going to see that. They're going to be able to see that in, in returns and riding with their training partners and their competitions in their group rides, all those sort of things, and they're going to be pretty happy with where they are. Coach Benock and Brody talked with us about his approach to coaching time crunch athletes. Let's hear about what he does and how it compares to Carmichael's approach. Ah, this is where if we're going to do time crunched and they're serious about results, I go with the um, HRV-based training. So I like uh, Joel Jameson's Morpheus. 
So when we have that, I'll, I will have three types of workouts. They're actually the same three I mentioned uh, in the book as well, but there's a movement day where we're just getting you on the bike and doing this low, uh, you know, level two endurance. We'll do a stimulation day, which is going to be kind of tempo or longer endurance. And then the last will be development day, which is high intensity. So for a true, like when we say time crunch, we're talking six hours or less, or are we talking- Let's say anywhere from five to eight hours. Okay. Five to eight hours. The answer is three layers, but in base and build, I want them, if we can get one day where they're going, they'll go out, but they'll do small ring endurance or big ring endurance where we're putting, we're adding a neuromuscular layer for it. And usually up until, you know, the end of build one, we'll do small ring. We want those, that faster, you know, turnover. And then once we get into build two and towards peak, it'll be a big ring endurance where we're getting the big muscular efforts and trying to challenge the stability on the bike. But I'll try and do uh, at least 110% of their desired or goal race distance, as long as uh, we know that they can handle that. So if their HRV is red, then obviously we wouldn't. But if they're yellow or green, then we'll do that. And then we'll adjust, you know, maybe go to 30-minute workout or just skip a high-intensity workout because we won't get that as much. And how much high-intensity would you have them do in a week? Uh, I really try and aim for at least uh, 18 to 20 minutes total um, with full recovery in between. But again, that also depends on are we getting are we going for neuromuscular response? Like, are we working on power starts uh, at the end of base because we're trying to tie stuff together, uh, or are we trying to do uh, a little bit more like fatigue at threshold when we're doing like over unders or gear based uh, stuff? So that will drive it. But the minimum would be between you know twelve minutes for intermediates, ten minutes for beginners, and in a single workout, eighteen minutes for advanced. Yeah. And then how many of those workouts in a week? In a single workout. Does that really yeah. vary? I usually, like, that's a development day, as I call it. So I usually don't like more than two. And that's for really advanced athletes who are on the bike, you know, four days a week. We're talking about eight hours time crunched. Um, whereas most of the athletes, to be honest, Trevor, will do one development day like that. We're really pushing VO2 max or whatever okay. it may be. And that'll just be one day a week. And we'll do two stimulation where we'll do, like, sweet spot, lactate threshold. But the high intensity, I'm talking anaerobic capacity, sprinting, like, you know, five to five seconds to two minutes would be that high intensity. But I, I like the cardio, cardiac power intervals. I'm a big fan of those, but it will base the recovery uh, for that development day off of heart rate. So you got 60 minutes. Here's your warm up. The warm up's 15 minutes, 12 minutes, depending on that specific athlete. I have two in mind. At the end of that, when you feel ready, you hit the gas all out a minute. And then you're recovering, you're soft pedaling, using your breathing techniques and postures to bring your heart rate back down to 120 to 130 as quickly as possible. And you're going to go through at least six of these up to when your recovery hits X amount of time. Right. And that's why it's so closely tied to the HRV. Because then we can see, oh, crap, we really redlined him. So let's let's back off. Or, oh, wow, you're green today. Okay. Okay, so Chris, why don't we dive into some of the science behind this? And and I do want to say, I want to give a huge compliment. I really enjoyed reading the science chapter in your book. As I was going through it, you, you started very basic and I was like, well, what about the Larson study from 202 that said this? And then two page later, you'd, you'd actually quote that Larson study. You even brought up, there's that great 1982 study by Dr. Dudley that's just a classic in endurance science. And some of the really key studies through the years you had mentioned and, and really built quite a, kind of a beautiful case for the value of high-intensity work. So I just want to say I really enjoyed that chapter. I'm not used to seeing that depth of, of science in a, in a training book. Great. Yeah, thank you. When we were looking into this, I like to think we took a pretty thoughtful approach. When you say we, who do you mean? Various coaches here at CTS. Okay, yeah, yeah. Jim Lehman, Dean Gulich. We wanted to look at what the research was out there before we made a shift. In the past, if you didn't have much time to train because you were in school or you had a big demands at, at your job, well, when you got on the bike, you rode as kind of as hard as you could. And it's like, well, if I'm not going to have much time to train, I better ride, I better ride hard. Well, we wanted to make sure that we had proper science that could back that up. And also, what did we actually want? What was measurable and what was repeatable that we could see in the training and get the gains that we would want to achieve? 
So we looked at the various research that was out there, and there's, you know, there's actually quite a bit. And, um, you know, it turned out that, you know, it was, it was it, improving VO2 max, improving functional threshold power. Those are things that you want to do with any athlete, right? I mean, no one's going to say no to, hey, 5% or 6% or 4%, you know, bump on my VO2 max. Everybody's going to raise their hand on that or 10, 12% increase in functional threshold power. You know, cyclists are all going to raise their hands on achieving that, but it's making sure that you can do it within the, the constraints that the, what we're calling the time crunched athlete, six to eight hours a week, how best to do that, how much intensity you need to add to an athlete's program in order to get those adaptations. And then, you know, obviously rest becomes critical because these are really hard workouts. They're generally workouts that you do as an individual athlete, not in a group setting. So there's the, the mental pressure, the mental stress of, of doing these workouts that you have to take in consideration. So we looked at all that and, you know, and, and, and that's why we, the research, it all pointed to let's, let's focus on functional threshold power. Let's focus on, on VO2 max, whether it's improving VO2 max or improving VO2 max power. If we're getting gains there, we're all going to be happy. So at the, the start of the book, you basically make a, a good point, which is you can't take what an elite athlete is doing when they're training 20 plus hours a week and apply that to a, somebody who can only train six hours. And I agree with you. Just by um, cutting it in half, for example. Right. So it's really just asking you your thoughts on, on why that is. What is it that doesn't apply? Yeah. You know, elite athletes, it's, it's not just the training that, you know, the, the available training time, it's really easy to look at an elite athlete and say, wow, they basically have all day to train. And so doing, you know, this idea of putting in moderate pace, long rides to get this aerobic adaptation stuff that is occurring down in the mitochondria, the muscles and things like that, that's great. But to just say, okay, it's just simply that the training time that the time crunch athlete doesn't have. It's more than that. It's, you know, elite athletes also have a lot more time to recover from their workouts as well. Time crunched athletes, they finish a workout and they're, you know, in those last 10 minutes of their workout, you're already losing them. They're already thinking about what they've got coming up right after they get off the bike, showering up their first meeting that's coming up at work. So their available time to recover and everything that's involved in that process is also greatly reduced as well. So you've got to take that in consideration. So it's not just simply taking what an elite athlete has and going, okay, we'll just cut that in half. When elite athlete is training 20 hours, we'll cut it in half. So we'll, we'll get it down to 10 hours and that'll be, that'll be enough. Well, chances are you're not going to put enough training stimulus on the aerobic system to get much adaptation. If they're a long ride, if they're sort of long endurance ride, is two hours and 15 minutes is not going to provide that training stimulus for that type of adaptation. And they're also crunched on the, the, if you're doing hard workouts, how many hard workouts can you put in a week that they're going to be able to recover from before they're ready for the next one? So you've, you've, you've also got to look at, at training time, recovery time as well. So we kind of focused on those things. And, and the nice things about, you know, when you're doing training VO2 max or you're training power at lactate threshold, those are obviously we're breaking these into intervals. And when you when you look at it from a power file standpoint, it makes it really clear how that athlete is responding to the workouts. You know, you can look at the workouts, one workout to the next, you can see whether the you're getting, you know, are you seeing power gains from one workout to the next? You know, quite a Quite a lot of times you can see gains from one workout to the next. You can see clearly whether you're getting the recovery bouts or whether they're starting the workout and they're having trouble holding that power and maybe they're still fatigued going into the workout and they need another recovery day. If you've got an athlete that's doing, a lead athlete who's doing multiple days of four, five, six, seven hours on the bike, relatively easy, moderate paced rides, when you're looking at that power file, 
it's really hard to be able to tell, hey, are we getting the mitochondria changes from that type of workout? Well, it's from a training structure standpoint, when you're doing VO2 training, lactate threshold training, very clear, easy data to look at and easy to understand whether you're getting the gains or you're not getting the gains and how you need to manipulate the training on that daily basis. Right. And I do just want to take a step back and do want to point out, because Chris asked, you just simply can't cut it in half. You actually literally said in the book, if an athlete has 10, 12 hours per week to train, you still feel that more classic approach that you take with the elite athletes is, is the better way to go. And you said you just cut it in half. So I think it's important throughout this conversation, you've said multiple times in the book, this is not necessarily the ideal way to train. This is the ideal way to train when time is that limited. Absolutely. You know, it, it's, we coach about 2,000 athletes at CTS annually. And the vast majority of those athletes are working between six, eight, 10 hours of available training time. And so as much as we'd love to push that out and we'd love to be able to get them, and, and that doesn't mean that you can't, many times an athlete will have, hey, Chris, I'm going on vacation next week and uh, I'm going to have 16 hours to train. Well, great. We can cycle in some, you know, long, moderate-paced endurance rides that the athletes will see some benefits from. But, you know, when they get back to the kind of the meat and potatoes of the training, it really centers around being able to fit it in to the available time that they have to train. And as much as we'd like to do more, and we know the limits of the program, and uh, it just doesn't become effective. The big thing is, is to be able to get the athletes to be able to stay in the game. You know, get them. So before they were getting dropped on the second, third hill on the group ride, that's a hard effort. Now they're getting over that hill. Now they're getting over the yeah. fourth, sixth hill. And they're actually getting to the end of the group ride. So they're still in the game. So they're still they're feeling really positive about their performance. And ultimately, as a coach, that's what you got to be looking to do. I spoke with Jared Berg, a highly experienced lab physiologist. Continuing with what was in the research from Dudley and Larson, he raised concerns about those aerobic developments. Let's hear what he has to say. I've talked about this with other coaches too, who, who are sort of falling to um, believing that you can sort of time crunch your way into, into fitness. I'm not a big fan. I feel like that um, proportion of training where you get 70 to 80% of your training really working towards developing that sort of aerobic capacity that really challenges your slow twitch muscle fibers to really build as many, you know, mitochondria as, as they can, as many capillary, you know, increase that capillary density as much as possible, right. To, um, you know, even encourage that sort of physiology to be able to function on, you know, more parasympathetically, not to be always sort of amped up and trying to interval and push and actually be able to get a little more, a little more relaxed sort of tone to maybe increase that stroke volume. And I think that's, you know, you can't ignore that. And yes, you can, you can time crunch it for maybe, you know, six months of your um, athletic career and like, and just focus on the intervals, the high intensity stuff and get a lot of great benefit. But then that's where a point there's going to be diminishing return is sort of my thought. And you really need to break it out or even in that sort of six hour week, you're doing, you know, four and a half sort of hours of that week are really geared towards that endurance, building those um, sort of that lower intensity training adaptations. And then you still are left over with a couple hours of, you know, potential to do some, some sub threshold work and some threshold work and then some VO2 max interval. So you're still, you're not, you're not greatly inhibited, even with that, you know, hour or less a, a day, you can still get that, volume plus the intervals and get the best of both worlds. Right. And so I, yeah, I would say that time crunch works for maybe a short time. And, but then, but then you have going back to what um, our body really develops on and, and building all the different uh, energy systems is where we have to uh, cycle back to and, and put that focus.
Hello, Fast Talk Labs members. This is head coach Ryan Kohler here. We are pleased to announce a big change to our forum. Our forum is now open to all listener members. Listener members can read and respond to 11 forum categories spanning topics like training concepts, physiology, sports nutrition, workouts, and more. Our members say that our forum has one of the highest signal-to-noise ratios in endurance sports. By opening our forum to listener members, we hope to encourage more discussion of all the topics that interest you. So jump right in, log in or join as a listener member and explore some of our most viewed posts like raising the ceiling, raising the floor, Dr. San Milan's zone two rides and Sebastian Weber answers questions on inside. We'll see you on the forum. So again, going back to the the science, as I said, I really enjoyed your chapter in the book. You were citing a lot of great studies. One of my favorites is a review by Dr. Larson, where he addresses the fact that, yes, high-intensity work can actually promote aerobic adaptations. It does hit that PGC1-alpha pathway that leads to increased mitochondrial development. But he does point out that the way it hits that pathway You see rapid adaptations, but they tend to plateau where that long, slow endurance work hits that pathway from a different direction and seems to have less of a a limiter on it. So you recognize this in the book, but, you know, I did want to ask you about this. And also you you cited that that Dudley study and it said very similar sort of things that they were looking at, I think it was cytochrome C, this much earlier study. There are probably better things to look at. But they even pointed out that that first you need that lower intensity aerobic work to hit that, get that maximal cytochrome C, and then the high intensity is on top of that. So I know you address this in the book, but it sounds like, yes, you're going to see some aerobic gains from this high intensity work. As you've pointed out, you're going to improve that glycolytic system, but there is a cap on this and, and there's a, you can only go so far. And you have to recognize that if you take this approach. Is that correct? Yes. What we find is the more like the VO2 training, if we're looking to, whether it's improve VO2 max power or just improve your VO2, those are very intense workouts. And depending upon the nature, they're between one minute to to four minutes in length. That cycle is usually two of those workouts within a week, usually you can do them in a block format or you do them maybe Tuesday, Wednesday. We typically like to see a recovery day in between. And so we'll do them Tuesday and Thursday many times with a Wednesday recovery day. It doesn't take, it takes probably six to, to eight of these workouts to really start seeing those sort of adaptations where you're starting to see increase in higher average power over those interval sessions. But if you continue that, it kind of folds up on itself and you, you've got to kind of back it down and go through recovery, regeneration phase, because you, you don't really have the base to be able to sustain and continue that longer than a six-week period, by and large. Yeah, and you pointed that out. I, I, I wish I had it in front of me, but uh, this was even a quote out of your book where you said you start to get top-heavy. And you can get crushed under your own weight. And forgive me, I'm going to go, you, you, you cited in the book one of my all-time favorite studies. I had to go back and reread it before we did this recording. <laughs> and, you know, again, in, in that Dudley study, they point that out, that this high-intensity work, it's going to produce oxidative adaptations in your fast-twitch fibers, which is going to help. That's when you're talking about that getting over that hill with the group as opposed to getting dropped. But they also pointed out with a lot of that high intensity, you actually see a decrease in gains in fast twitch fibers. So as you said, you're really building those big, strong, more glycolytic fibers, but not necessarily helping those big aerobic fibers. So this leads to the the next question, which I know you wanted to talk about, which is you said this approach is great for events under three hours but you're going to start fading because you don't have necessarily a well-developed slow-twitch fiber. So what about somebody who wants to do an event that's longer than three hours? And I know you had a couple chapters about this in the book. Well, first of all, you're absolutely correct. Somebody who's targeting, let's say, more of an ultra-endurance cycling event, unbound or 
you know, a lot of the events out there, cycling events out there now are 200 mile events and, and they're going to be pressed um, on events like this. So you, you also want to look at, obviously, in working with an athlete like this is the nutrition plan. Make sure you have a really, you're looking at the nutrition, you're looking at the hydration plan that you have for the athletes. Because th- these are all mistakes athletes make, not all athletes, but many athletes make. So making sure that if you're doing these big events and you, you haven't been able to put in this nice, big aerobic endurance base, you're going to need to make sure that you're following a really good nutrition plan that you've honed down in your training, good hydration plan because they go hand in hand together. And then when you can build in and cycle in periods where an athlete could have more available training time, back down the intensity of the training and put in more long, longer endurance. And sometimes it doesn't take as as much training volume as you would expect in order to get some of that, those positive aerobic adaptations. You still are having to work within the constraints that the athlete has. So they may have, okay, now they they have a week coming up that they're going to have 12 hours, 13 hours available to train. Well, you're also not going to want to go out and have them do the same level of intensity, those same high intense intervals whether it's targeting VO2 max or functional threshold power, you're going to want to back those down and so that you're able to do three, four-hour days and get up to 13 hours, but you've backed down the intensity so you don't have that oxidative stress that's occurring from those high-intensity intervals. And you're looking to hopefully get that aerobic adaptation that occurs from doing moderate-paced, longer endurance-style miles. That's actually something that uh, I have found really valuable with my time-crunched athletes. As you pointed out, you can be very effective with limited time and and very targeted work. But I usually ask them as we're doing a build-up to their event, could you give me two weekends in this 10 to 12-week period of time where you can tell the family, sorry, you're not going to see a ton of me. I'm probably going to be a little bit grouchy and get two days of some good aerobic work, some good endurance work. And and I find that even if it's just every six weeks or even you can just get it once can really help to round out. Absolutely. And I think some of it is also not just the gains from the aerobic work, the longer, moderate-paced aerobic rides, but it's also that's the perfect time to start honing in your nutrition plan with athlete, your hydration plan. And so that they go into the event and they know exactly how much and how often and what they're eating throughout the course of this ultra endurance event, how hydration is critical to the plan as well. So I think you also want to look at it from that standpoint and use that time to effectively develop a good nutrition hydration plan for the athletes. And, you know, it, it really kind of goes back to the, you know, the overall training principles, one being reversibility. You know, a lot of times an athlete will start the beginning of the cycling season and they're coming off a big base of longer, moderate paced endurance rides. And they have this great, well-developed aerobic system. They start developing, start doing more intense workouts and things like that. Well, will start your body, it'll start to reverse itself. Right, that reversibility principle, you're going to start over a period of time if you're not putting in that training or you know longer, moderate-paced aerobic work, where you're going to start to lose that over a period of time. And you see that when an athlete gets into the racing season, they're racing, having to recover from the race, having to freshen up for the race. Maybe there's only really one serious training ride in the week. After six or seven weeks of that, their aerobic base has deteriorated pretty significantly because of the reversibility that has occurred. So I want to ask you one more question about the science behind all this before we move on. And I will tell you, when I first heard about your your time crunch approach before I had read it, this was an athlete up in Toronto who told me about it and said it was great and asked him what he was doing and he was doing and trust me, I've now read and know that he completely misinterpreted your book, but he was doing intervals five <laughs> days in a row during the week. 
which just kind of dropped my jaw. And so this goes back to a lot of the, the original research by Dr. Steven Seiler looking at the fact that intensity causes a lot of autonomic stress. It affects your nervous system. And he did a fair amount of research showing that once you start getting over three, basically said two interval sessions a week is, is generally optimal. Three, you can see a little more gain. You get over that and you're seeing no more gain, but you're actually pushing yourself towards overreach or even overtraining. So I, I was interested in your thoughts on that, but I was also very pleased when I, I looked at your plans to see that you never did more than three high intensity sessions a week, even in this time crunched approach. Absolutely. We wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. I kind of make it as try to take a simple approach as possible. This high intensity training, whether it's VO2 max or threshold power, it's powerful medicine. And you've got to be careful about, you know, it can bring you some great gains, but there can be some side effects to it. And a lot of times, you know, this is one of the things that with an athlete who's seen these gains and they're really excited and wow, man, I'm now, I'm not getting dropped on that, on that third pill on the group ride. I'm, I'm, I'm able to stay with them all the way to the end and they just want to do more. And you're, you're kind of battling that, that aspect of, of more is better. And it's really, I find about two hard interval sessions a week is about all an athlete can handle. And then a third, maybe a mix where you're trying to tie in all the systems, maybe a group ride where, you know, it's, they're listening VO2 max, they're at, they're above it, they're below it, they're, you know, over threshold, they're under it, they're at it, you know, and and you're kind of tying it all together. If you have beyond three hard sessions in a week, chances are in a relatively short period of time, the athlete is going to start being overtrained and they're not going to, you're not going to have enough recovery to have them adapt and slowly their performance is going to start going down. And, you know, one thing for many times an athlete overtraining, they kind of confuse the symptoms, so to speak, of overtraining to undertraining. And they think they're just training enough or hard enough. And they just keep doing more and more and more. And it, and it digs a hole only deeper. And so you really want to make sure that what's nice about the time crunch program is from a data standpoint, from a power file standpoint, it's really pretty clear when they're doing threshold intervals and they're doing VO2 intervals, when you've reached a plateau and when you need to back it down and say, okay, we're done, you know, let's just take it easy for the next 10 days and then start building, you know, periods of just longer, moderate paced rides, um, still staying in with that available training time. But it becomes very clear when you're doing intervals on Tuesday and Thursday, you're no longer seeing gains and that you're, you know, you're actually now starting to see the data showing that, Hey, you know, this session, they're averaged, you know, six, seven Watts lower than the previous session. Well, let's, let's take the next five days and just go just ride easy. And then they freshen up and it's like, okay, they're fresh. You do another hard interval workout. You look at it and their Watts are up. 10 watts higher than they were before. Okay, now we're back. Let's let's crank it back up and we'll do it. Top coach Neil Henderson has developed his own very successful approach to coaching. But when dealing with athletes with limited time, he and Chris Carmichael both value the importance of recovery. So for athletes that have a, a, a relatively low training volume, let's just say, you know, maybe six, eight hours a week, there's still absolutely both a need and value for including short recovery rides as part of that volume. Uh, typically still at least a couple days a week of those 30, maybe up to 60 minute rides are going to provide value in accelerating the recovery process. And these are, these are very important aspects, not just kind of like nice to have, but these are important, especially for that person with the low training volume, because they probably work full time, have family, have more things going on and managing not just that physical stress, but also that mental stress can be uh, definitely accomplished with some of these short, easy recovery spins and rides like that. Great. So you, you're saying though, uh, or what I'm hearing from you is the the timing is going to be critical. So this would be probably something you'd do after a hard day? Yep. This is the perfect time, you know, and a lot of times 
if you can't get outside, you know, especially winter months, it's harder, you know, it's dark and cold and whatnot, just being able to jump on the trainer and, and kind of tune out a little bit and just recover, listen to some music or, or just kind of tune out and, and hit the reset button, both a little bit of movement and some other rela- relaxation, definitely important this time of year as the, the days are longer, even after that, that full day of work going out and just doing a 20 minute, 30 minute easy spin will provide benefit in help speeding the recovery and putting you in a good mental headspace too. One of the nice approaches is that data is very, it speaks for itself. If you're just looking at it where it's easy to know when enough is enough. The other thing that you just hinted at a little bit, which I really appreciated is you state very clearly in the book between these 10, 11 week builds you need that four to six weeks of, of recovery before you do your next build. And what I really liked is you said, you don't drop the volume. You can continue to train six to eight hours a week. It's just all low intensity. So in a kind of a strange or interesting way, you're still getting a little bit of that, that base work. And you know, that was actually the, the, the Larson study again. His point right at the end of it was the best training is a block of high intensity after a, a block of just low intensity aerobic work. And in your own way, you're finding a way to do that with time crunched athletes. Yeah, the, the key is to you've got to balance it with the athlete's schedule. You know, I mean, you've got to tie it into what are their goal events. One of the other advantages of the time crunch model is you can really cut down the, the training cycles and, and, and make them shorter, a little more specific. It's the, the old idea that, okay, we're going to do this periodization model and we're going to peak for, you know, one or two events in the year. Well, you know, that, that's great, but you, you better hope you get it right <laughs> or else you know, you're going to have an athlete that's, that's disappointed in the event that they've trained kind of six months for along the way. So I think one of the things we found with this is we can do shorter cycles of interval training, you know, three to six weeks, followed by three to six weeks of easy, moderate paced rides, and then back into this, these interval sessions and kind of toggle that the entire cycling season and match that up to the athlete's goals and the events that they have so that they can stay competitive from the beginning of the season to the middle to the end of the season as well. You got to, as I say, shorten up those cycles a bit and have periods that they freshen back up. You're still going to have deficiencies in the athlete's overall training, and that's going to be you know, ultimately in longer endurance events. That's where you're going to have some deficiencies. One thing I want to make sure that we cover, given our, it seems like we've acquired this reputation as proponents of the polarized training model. It's not untrue. We, we, we definitely speak to those that believe in it, but we also speak to athletes that are, are time crunched, have limited time, working dads, working moms, etc. And we often get asked that very question, can I still, or should I still use the polarized approach if I only have these six to eight hours a week. So Chris, what would you say to them? I would say, you know, you want to be able to pull from all the best training methods, best workouts, the things that can improve an athlete's performance. As long as I would say the key is making sure that whatever model, whatever approach, whatever workouts you're using, that you're still following the fundamental principles of training. Because as I always like to say, really greatness is lives in the fundamentals. And, you know, it's like one overload, you know, are we getting an, an overload? And, and then progression, you know, are we are we adding some progression into, into the training? You know, is there next recovery? Is there ample recovery from a hard bout of training? Before you start another form of training, specificity. If you're if you're training for an event that has a, a mile and a half long climb to the finish, well, there should be some specificity to that. Then reversibility is a, another training principle. And you know, as you're doing any one particular form of training for 
for over a period of time, well, there's going to be some reversibility in other aspects of your energy systems or event demands that, that will occur. Individuality, have you tied this to you as an individual? You know, somebody who really, from the get-go, they, man, they can, their three-minute power, they can turn it on for three minutes, and it's incredible. Well, you know, they may not need to do that much VO2 training. You may to, may need to focus a bit more on functional threshold power. So I think as long as you're going back and, and being able to apply the fundamental principles of training to any training model, then I think you're going to be, you're, you're fine. Because if you're, it's where, where I find where things go wrong is when you deviate from the fundamental principles of training. No, I would agree with that. And I actually, even though the, I wouldn't call this a polarizer, I wouldn't call it a sweet spot approach either. It's its own unique approach. You do apply many of the very similar principles. And one of the things that I like is you're very judicious. You're not saying go and destroy yourself with high intensity. As a matter of fact, and you address this in the book, you're using high intensity to build form, but you're keeping it limited. In a given week, you might only accumulate a total of, of 30, 40 minutes of time above that lactate threshold. So if we actually, you know, just looking at, I'm looking at your weeks right now, if we did this by percent of time, Dr. Seiler tended to, to do it by workouts. So how many workouts did you have that were high intensity workouts versus easy? And by that, no, it's not polarized at all. But if you did it by percent of time, you would still be on, on your plan here spending the bulk of your time at low intensity. There, there's no one in here you're saying, go out and do that kind of in-between feel-good 90% of threshold power rides to try to, to up that training stress a bit. Yeah, no, not at all. And that's one of the things we hear most often from athletes when we first start working with them. It's like, wow, feels like I'm just doing a lot of easy riding. and then you kind of walk them back through it and go, okay, let's take a look at what you did on Thursday. You know, let's take a look at what you did on Tuesday. Tuesday, you spent 22 minutes at, you know, basically eliciting your VO2 max. That's a lot of time at VO2 max, but the rest of the time is just easy riding. You know, on Thursday, maybe you're, you're spending 18 minutes at VO2 max. If you're doing a, a phase of, of VO2 max training, VO2 training, you really can't handle, most athletes, even elite athletes, can't handle a lot more than that. And a lot of, it's like I said, I like to look at intense training as really powerful medicine and it has side effects. You have to be careful when you apply it, you know, and, and when you use it, because, you know, it's not always just sunshine and, and it's easy to kind of overdo it. I look back when I was an athlete on the 7-Eleven team and, and, when I was on the national team before that, and uh, the polarized approach, you know, sort of that 80-20, 80% of the training you're doing is, is pretty easy, moderate, 20% is, is pretty intense. And I look back to a lot of how we trained, and it was very much that 80-20. We'd go out, we'd do a lot of long rides together, two by two, all of a sudden, you know, hey, we're coming up to a town where we need to stop and, and get something to eat and, and drink. And so we'll crank it up for 10 miles going into that town. Team time trial training, get to the front, pull as hard as you can, get off, sprint to get back on, sprint when you get to the front, you know, and 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 we may do that three times in about roughly about 20, 30 minutes in the course of of you know six hours on the bike. Overall, you're you're in that kind of range of 20% is pretty intense, 80% is really pretty moderate paced rides. You know, so I'll say that that style of training has been around for quite a while and, and has shown itself to be very effective. Now, back then we had very limited ways in which we could measure and, and what we could measure. And that was primarily an Avocet computer, which was speed, time. That was about it. I remember those. They were fun. <laughs> the olden days. As Carmichael points out, it always comes back to the principles and balance. 
So before we wrap up the episode, let's hear from coach and physiologist Julie Young and her thoughts on the importance of sticking to the fundamentals of training, even in time-crunched athletes. I mean, I guess for me, it's, you know, (laughs) the time-crunched athlete is always driving the ship, you know, in terms of, you know, sometimes people will, athletes will come and say, well, what's, you know, what's the time commitment? Like, what do I need in terms of time commitment? And I think it's, for me, in order to create a really positive experience and, and not create like a sense of conflict is always working within the athlete's time parameters. So I, I mean, again, for me, I try to keep it as just the same, you know, balanced approach to training. So not, not more, not the sense of cramming, but, you know, again, for me, there's, it's always important to, to maintain that off bike work because I feel at the end of the day, that makes you functionally better on the bike. So I never like, I guess I'm, I'm not going to be forced into shortcuts. And I think sometimes, you know, you can kind of get the sense of urgency, like I only have this much time, but at the end of the day, it's, it's about consistency over time and like, you know, helping that athlete kind of stay the course and, and helping, you know, the time they do have maximizing that time. So I always ask those time crunched athletes to go into to training piece and just, you know, put availability and that, you know, that may be the same from week to week, or typically it's not the same and there's, you know, variations. So, you know, when, when I'm creating a plan, just working around like, okay, the time they have available and making the most of that time. And then, you know, just, I think too, a lot of the athletes, I'm sure Trevor, the athletes you train, a lot of the athletes I train are very type A. And so if it's, it's kind of an all or nothing. And I think also helping athletes understand like something is better than nothing. And so like, if we can make those small deposits during the week of 20 minutes of if that's stability or 30 minutes where you can get out and run, like that then sets you up for those times, like maybe on the weekend where you have more time just mentally and physically, you know, you're not just throwing your, your body through this roller coaster. So that's, that's really the approach I try to take. Well, Chris, you've not been on the program before, but we do like to close out every episode, giving uh, our guests and ourselves uh, a minute, only a minute to to wrap up, give us the, the most important take home. So I'll turn it over to you to start. What is the most important message people should take from our discussion today? I think probably first would be um, just make sure your training has a real focus. You know, what, what are you, you know, why are you doing it and, and what do you want to gain? For the time crunch program, we focus on increasing VO2 max, or we focus on increasing power at lactate threshold or functional threshold power, however you want to say it. Those are the two things that that we focus on and and we try to create. We have devices that allow us to collect data, to monitor it, to measure it, and then to be able to manipulate it. So I would say just, just make sure you're asking yourself, what's the reason why you're training, and what do you want to gain from it? Yeah, I, I think I would follow that up with it, maybe saying the same thing with a different word, but setting those expectations of what this can do and what compromises you're, you're making, what it's limited by. But I'd also say the thing we stress on this show often, and we, we addressed it multiple times today, is the fact that more isn't always better. You know, you see these gains, they happen quickly. You get into this cycle where you think, okay, well, if that, if two a week is good, then three must be better and four must be better, but that's not the case. And we've, we've certainly addressed that many times on the show and and here today. So that that's the cautionary aspect. Trevor, what would you say? Well, as as I said during the episode, my first exposure ever to your time-crunched approach was a misinterpretation from an athlete up in Toronto who was just killing himself every single day and telling me he was following your plan. So at first I was like, oh my God, what are they doing? What is this book going to do to people? Yeah. But then I read it. And what really impressed me is the amount of science behind this. And in particular, you back up why if somebody has six hours per week, this is the way they're going to get the best gains and be competitive. And I really appreciate that you say, yeah, if you have 14 hours per week, we can make you a much stronger, better cyclist, but not everybody has 14 hours per week. So here is with that very limited time, the way we can make your best. Great. Excellent. Thank you, Chris, for joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thank you. That was another episode of Fast Talk. 
Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode and become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join to become a part of our education and coaching community. For Chris Carmichael, Menachem Brody, Jared Berg, Julie Young, Neil Henderson, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.